We have our first sponsor. If you guys have been watching our Instagram account, you've probably seen it. One of the coolest things that Precision Camera offers is what's called a virtual showroom. What you can do is log into their website at precision-camera.com. And right on the first page there, you'll see a link to the virtual showroom. You can go in there and schedule an appointment. And what you'll do is a video conference with a salesperson on the floor. And these people deal with all levels, all camera brands, all the time. And you're going to be able to tell them your level of experience or the person that you're buying for. And you'll be able to tell them your budget. And based off of that, you'll be able to narrow in on what is the best camera for what you have going on. If you don't have time for a video chat, there is also a text chat option. If you have a quick question about a product, you can type in your question and somebody will get back to you very quickly. If you decide to do that and you decide to buy a camera, we got a good deal for you. With their sponsorship of the show, they've also given us a coupon code. If you go in, set up your account, create your purchase, get to the checkout screen, you'll get a little field on the checkout sheet that asks for a coupon code. And what you want to put in is wild and exposed. And what that gets you is $50 off of a $500 or more dollar purchase. We're super excited to have Precision Camera as a sponsor. Now on with the show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. This is episode one, season four. Got Mark Raycroft coming to us from Ontario, Canada. Michael Morrow. Denver, Colorado. And Jason Loftus. Jason, where are you out of, from? I'm out of O-Town, Utah, Ogden. Nice. And I'm Ron Hayes, your fourth host. And I'm coming to you out of Douglas, Wyoming. Now, hold on, hold on. This is Tim Irvin here, and I'm I'm back on the show here. I've been lucky enough to be a guest on the show previously. Last time was back in December. And we're going to turn the tables on these guys a little bit this week. We're going to uh, we're going to shoot the questions in their direction this time. You know, these guys are so good at being gracious hosts and and uh, listen to all the stories, pulling the stories out of their guests. But we're gonna we're gonna make them tell the stories this week and and plumb them for some of their uh, experiences and and knowledge. You guys, can you guys cope with that? It'll be yeah, a short I'm not podcast. sure if I got any good stories. <laughs> well, that's great because we don't have much time. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you guys are heading into this is your going to be your fourth season of Wild and Exposed. Is that right? That's yes. right. Correct. Yeah. Celebration. And that, and, and that should be a celebration. I mean, that's a really big deal. I really admire you guys for the tenacity to, to pull that off. I mean, a lot of people start podcasts and they fizzle out after a month or two. And you guys are really uh, doing something special here. So it's it's great to be a part of it in this tiny little way. But uh, maybe just to, to get things rolling here. I'd be curious to hear from you guys, you know, maybe we'll just, I'm looking at my Skype screen. I'm going to go clockwise here, but starting with Mark, what, what got you into photography in the first place? Animals. Just always have loved animals and <laughs> photography gave me an opportunity to be a, um, a purpose to be out there with animals, study them more. Really didn't become serious until I was in university studying wildlife biology that it kind of clicked I had carried a camera through my teens without a telephoto lens. It was quite a fun little experience where I never collected any images of any quality, sneaky up on wildlife that way. But it was a fun experiment in animal behavior. 
when I was in university, I was uh, doing a research study program uh, for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources, the equivalent of the Department of Natural Resources on white-tailed deer, and met a photographer in the field. <laughs> I knew where the deer were. He was uh, a wildlife photographer, and this is how he made his living, and that's when the light bulb turned on, and I didn't look back. I did a good job on, on the research study, but that summer I honestly did a better job on, on my photography portfolio. And and my the research scientist I worked for, Dennis Voigt, he was he was quite accommodating. And and thanks, Dennis, for that back then. <laughs> but it it uh, switched priorities and it just gave me the opportunity to be out with that that drive longer each year. And it was uh, fortuitous in timing because I was just finishing my degree and I didn't have any responsibilities as a young man, no, no family. I wasn't married at the time and didn't have a mortgage or anything. So I could balance some work with trying to build a portfolio and make it, make it happen that way. So that was good timing. I know it would have been much harder and more challenging if, if those other parameters had been in place then. So I got a question real quick before Tim continues. So did you actually take wildlife pictures with that first camera or was it just camera and you take pictures or whatever? Was it just the photography part of it or were you seriously interested in wildlife at that point? I was seriously interested in wildlife at that point. So I'd started working at 15 years old for the Department of Natural Resources in uh, a forestry section and, and also fisheries. But my passion was large mammals. And so after five years of working in forestry, my supervisor sent me to a conference to meet Dennis Voigt and a couple other research scientists. And that's when I kind of shook their hands and said who I was and what I what I do. And, and I think that my uh, supervisor at the time, Ron, had forwarded my information and that's and I switched over to wildlife. But it started with all those jobs in the field. But I even had like moccasins. So we lived on the edge of a town where a, a big conservation area was one block away, one street away, and I was in wilderness to a degree. And I would put on these moccasins in the fall with my camera, with my 50-millimeter lens that I borrowed from this guy I worked with. I you know, was like 16, 17. I couldn't afford any camera equipment. And I would, I would sit down. And there was a pipeline there and then some forest and I'd hide in the bushes and try and predict where the deer were going to come out and photograph them. And it worked now and then, but other things would happen. You know, a little rabbit would come out or a bird would land beside me, an owl would come by. But deer were what I was most interested in in finding and photographing. And, and again, never really got any images, but it was more of the experience. And I uh, back then lost um, more than one girlfriend thanks to... <laughs> I, 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 one of, one of, one of my dates, this is how naive I was at this stuff at the time. Uh, says, come on out into nature with me. And it wasn't a wink, wink thing. No, no, let's go out there for real. We're I'm going to take some pictures. And I said, sit here and I'll be back shortly. And I got lost on this game trail, not lost, but timing wise got lost, lost track of time and came back out like an hour, hour and a half later to where I asked her to sit and wait. And she was just furious because I left her in the, in the woods. Anyway, that's how, how much I was into the idea of being close to wild animals, but hadn't made the connection in any way at that point that it was financially possible to support oneself with that. It was just a, a hobby of mine. It wasn't until I met that photographer when I was working on the deer study and realized he was making a living at it that 
and and then we you know we worked together for a few years that way as well but oh that's that's amazing i love that i mean it sounds like you know you're just a guy who's always been interested in wildlife and you sort of you know, he carried around this 50 mil camera. You spent time just in the bush. You alienated girlfriends. And, you know, probably some of your friends were wondering what you're doing, too. I'm guessing that you probably didn't have a lot of peers who were doing things like that. Or maybe they were out there hunting or something. Well, I did have a few friends, Tim. I mean, I didn't have a lot, maybe. But... <laughs> Is that what I said? I didn't mean to suggest uh, no, that. No, I've, I've just been it. I'm, I'm being funny. Yeah. yeah. No, you know but what? I'll All... tell you, let me just interrupt, because he left yeah. me in the woods two years ago. <laughs> so it does happen There's still today. Here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were supposed to be working on a project, and then one track mind, Mark, there's a moose, there's a big moose, and the way he's gone. So it still <laughs> happens. But well, there were two things. You're right, and I'm sorry that that date didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. I know we've had good dates since then, but that was the first day first in Alaska, the, the first well, not the first day of that trip. It was the first moose day of that trip. And yeah, if you if you let me off with moose, then yeah. Forget. You may or may not see me again for a while on that first day. If you want Mark's yeah. attention, don't take him near wildlife. Right. Well, that's great. I love that sort of transition from your sort of just your your sort of uh, your interest as a young man, then transitioning to actually studying this at school, and then transitioning into just you know wildlife photography full time. Eventually, you know that's that's it's pretty neat transition. I think there's a lot of people who end up studying biology and and transition into photography in one way or another, and. Um, I am nowhere near the accomplished photography you are, but photography is part of my life in a big way. And it also started out in a very similar way to you. And I went to school to study the same stuff. I, I think we actually went to the same school. Did you go to Guelph? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we're same school. So yeah, that's that's great. I love that. And, and how about you, Michael? What are, what are your roots in this crazy business? You know, I think it's very similar to what you guys were just talking about. I, although... Yeah. That's why I asked Mark earlier, was he into wildlife in the very beginning? Because I can remember getting a camera. It was one of those little 110s. You guys remember those long, skinny ones where you just push oh. a button and it like, and then it, the film was like, I don't know, it was like a cassette almost. Yeah, yeah. And I think the cool thing about that was it was just something I could have in my belt and I could capture a moment. You know, I, I, yeah. I don't even, I couldn't even tell you if we have any pictures or even if we ever got any developed, I don't even remember. But I remember just right. having a camera on my belt all the time. And then uh, I kind of got out of that, but I grew up in a small mountain town. And I can remember my mom telling me, you're going to college, no questions about this, just go do something. And you know, nobody told me what to do, but since I grew up in the mountains, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go become a biologist because hopefully I can find a job and be in the mountains and be around wildlife. And lo and behold, I got a degree, but I also was able to get a job with the National Park Service at the same time. Mm. And so my first job with the National Park Service was to chaperone a professional wildlife photographer. Wow. So it was at Mesa Verde National Park. If you know Mesa Verde, much of the backcountry is closed off to the public. So since it's an archaeological resource, there's the part that everybody gets to see that's very common, but then there's all this backcountry that's almost like a buffer zone, right? That nobody's ever back in there. And the wildlife was just incredible. And this guy found out that there was this amazing wildlife that nobody ever gets to see. And somehow he finagled his way into photographing the backcountry. but the park service, their only caveat to the whole thing was, is they had to have, he had to have a park service employee with him all the time. And that I was low man on the totem pole. Nobody wanted to go spend the day with this dude, just chaperoning, opening up gates and stuff for him. So it was my job. And that's when the 
the bell hit and I'm like, oh, you can actually make a living at this thing. And so from that point forward, I. Even that early on, like when that you were thinking kind of almost off the bat that, hey, you could make a living doing this because you were with a guy who was doing that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I was, you know, all through college, I took photo classes. I did all the developing, all the darkroom stuff. I was still into the photography and I was doing the wildlife stuff. But, and I can remember cutting out pictures of outdoor life and field and streaming when I was a kid and I'd cut them out and I'd stick them to my wall. So I always had this passion for wildlife images, but I never really put two and two together that you could actually go, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just nobody ever told me or you just don't really think about it, right? It's not like yeah. today's world. I look at kids in today's world with counselors and all the help that they get. And you get a lot of coaching. It's like, oh, well, you have an interest in this. You should go try this. When I grew up, it's like, get a job, get something stable, and you'll do it for the rest of your life. And you'll retire and you'll just be like everybody else, right? Right. So nobody just says, hey, just go find your passion. I just happen to luck into it. Fascinating, so, isn't it? Yeah. You just never know what's going to happen. So how old were you when you were chaperoning that guy around? So I must have been in my... Early 20s, I guess. Yeah, young that guy. would have been, wow. yeah. So right out of college. And, and so after that meeting then, after working with that guy, what happened next? Like, did you get a camera shortly after or what did you do? That was it, man. That was like, that was my number one thing is I'm going to work till I can afford to buy a camera, you know. And, and in right. those days, you could go to a sporting goods store and buy a camera. Huh. So I can remember I went to Gart Sports in Denver, Colorado, and I bought a Canon camera and a well, I don't know. It had to be like a 300 F8. I don't know. It was just wow. a long, skinny, little bitty <laughs> lens. And, but by golly, it was a, it was, it was it. And I can remember seeing guys back then with like a 300 eight, And I'd look at that and be like, oh, someday, someday I'm going to have one of those lenses. Now, that was the, the start of it. And it's been awesome since then. But it's so much hard work and so much rejection. I mean, some of those early pictures... My folks still have them and you go back and look at them and they're like blurry and you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't afford anything. So I shoot everything in black and white and then I process the film myself and then I print it myself. And at that time it was great, but you know, you look at them now and you're like, Oh man, I had a long ways to go. Well, it's interesting. I was just, um, I remember reading something that Ian McAllister wrote about how, when he, uh, you know, started doing all his great bear rainforest photography as a young man. And, um, he said he found out pretty quick that blurry pictures of bears and wolves did not inspire anybody, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, obviously he's come a heck of a long way since then, but, uh, and we, I think we all have those stories. I was looking through some photos from, I was telling Mark about this earlier this week from 10 years ago. And I was astounded at how bad I was. And, and, and some of the things that I missed that I absolutely should have gone, gotten, cause I just technically wasn't very good. You know, I mean, we all start somewhere, right? Well, and it's the rejection, right? I think that forces you to learn. And, and it was really, it hurt while you're doing it because you send these images that you put all this hard work into and this passion and you think they're just so good and you send it off to an editor and either you don't hear anything back or they just let you have it. And they're like, these are horrible. And wow. fortunately, I just didn't, you know, I didn't have that. I had the drive to keep going. I didn't have the quit. Quit never entered my mind. It's like, okay, I'm going to show you, you blah, blah, blah. I would just take it. And then I also had a mentor, which we talk about on this podcast a lot. I found a couple of guys that were pros that were publishing photographers, and I would invite them over to look at my stuff. 
And I used to hate them too because they would be like, well, that sucks. Why would you take a picture of a deer laying down? Why would you do that? There's a tree growing out of the head of that deer, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, man. But each one of those experiences was a learn. I just learned something every time. And you just stick oh, with yeah, it. Oh, that's, yeah. That's an amazing learning opportunity. I mean, it, it, the trouble is when you work in isolation, whether you're writing or doing photography or anything, if you don't have that kind of feedback, man, your learning curve is, is really slow. Yep. You know, we all got to be grateful to those those people in our lives who give us that kind of criticism. You know, hopefully they do it with some tact, right. but it, it can really make a big difference for us. You know, in whatever whatever we're doing. Yep. Yeah. Well, one other thing too, on a positive note, with each step that we make, you know, our our I we're our hardest or most critical judge of our work ourselves. I'm not making sense here, but we are hard, harder on you ourselves than not. anybody else. No, thank so you. Much, yeah, but you're not making sense. <laughs> We're most critical of our own work, but at the same time, until our eye is trained, we're also, it's easy to be pleased with the work and to, and to just recognize that no matter what stage one's portfolio is at of development, there are going to be gems in there for each stage mm -hmm. along the way mm -hmm. and appreciate that. So even if there, you know, if there's a hundred images of somebody who's new into photography and there are three really fantastic ones, there's still three fantastic pictures, you know, and, and. Mm -hmm you'll reflect back someday and still appreciate those few and, and the memories associated with them. I think that's yeah. the biggest tripping block for us starting out new is we get, we get absorbed into the memory of the experience and that sways our, our opinion of the image to make it even better than it is. And when we show somebody who wasn't there, it's just black and white to them as far as just here's the image. They have no emotional connection to it like we do. And so that, that changes the outcome. And then it's, it's great to have that feedback from yeah. somebody with experience to get that. But yeah, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow at times. Yeah, I, I think that's the acid test right there. If you show it to somebody else and it moves them. And I can tell you, my wife is almost always bored stiff with, with my photograph. She's just like, oh, that's nice, dear. Very nice. What else? You know, she, I'm just like, ah, I guess I got to keep working. But, yeah. Your images are great. The storytelling for, for the last podcast we did, they relay the landscape and story wonderfully. So well, thank stop you. being so hard on yourself. <laughs> but what you said is exactly right, because you can show somebody an image that you're just so passionate about, and then you get that same response. Just like you said, everybody's like, yeah, okay. And you well, just know you got to go back, because the minute you yeah. get that image where somebody's like, holy moly, yeah. then you know you got something. Then you yeah. know you got that iconic image. You know you got something that is always going to be, you'll be known for that image. Yeah. Yeah. So Jason, uh, you're awful quiet down there so far. You're next in line here. What, what caught the spark for you for this, uh, for photography? Um, well, I'm going to be the outcast here. I was not into biology. I am a late onset photographer. I got into it through hunting actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing and camping and so on with my family. And, uh, for me, it was really just kind of an initial spark of trying to capture uh, those moments that I would experience while I was out traipsing around in the outdoors and always been interested and intrigued in animals and so on. But for me, the journey began with just buying a quick point and shoot and then learning the hard way that that's not the right kind of equipment I was looking for. And it went through the entire process like many of us have. But when I ultimately ended up finding uh, the DSLR and a longer zoom lens and being able to afford those things two, three years down the road, and after many YouTube videos and lots of reading and so on, 
um, I, I realized pretty quickly that it was a great reason to be out chasing around animals in a different way than out hunting. And it, and it, like, uh, Mark mentioned, it drove me to want to spend more and more time out with the animals and to, to the point now where obviously I spend a lot of time out in the outdoors, um, with the animals. And I think I've talked about it before, but to me, it's a lot like hunting just with a camera. So, um, I enjoy the hunting with the camera a lot more now than I than I do with the, you know, traditional weapons, so to speak. So that's yeah, what started think, it for me. I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, to me, that's such a natural progression and um, not, not to suggest that hunters naturally progress into photography, but I think, you know, hunting is, you know, a, a passion and interest in the outdoors and wildlife specifically, right? And so it doesn't surprise me that uh, some hunters decide that, hey, you know what, if I get a camera, then the season's always open. Yep. <laughs> right. Because this is the thing, you know, hunting season is a pretty short time of the year. And I know for some people, for a lot of hunters, that is absolutely the time of year when they feel most alive. They're most excited. They're, you know, they just can't wait to get out there. And um, I saw a guy like, I don't know, he had some sort of hunt, hunting bumper sticker on his truck today. And I thought, that poor guy, he only gets to go out for two or three weeks a year. You know, we get to go <laughs> any other time we want. Yeah. So, you know, that, that it's, it's really interesting to me because I think, um, you know, there's a lot of fundamental stuff, whether you're coming at it from a natural history or biology background or a hunting background, it's really a love and passion and interest in the outdoors. And to me, what photography does is just really focus your attention on it. You yeah. Know, uh, no, no pun intended. Or, okay, maybe that pun is intended. <laughs> but uh, you know, it really focuses your attention on your subject and immerses you in that place, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. Yeah. yeah, and it opens the door to so much more, too, variety and stuff. Most hunters are only hunting a few different species. And now I hunt with my camera, you know, the, it's the, the it's limitless, right? So, yeah. and, and there's always something to shoot. So my wife loves it, right? Because she used to only have to deal with me being gone one, one or two weeks a year, <laughs> like you mentioned. But now it's constant, so. <laughs> right. Oh, that's great. Well, I that's think great. the other thing what? to mention there is with when with a hunter – you know, if you're out there, let's say you're hunting deer, you know, you see a deer, you're thinking, okay, I got meat in the freezer, right? With a photographer, you see the deer and then you get to watch the whole life, all their, you know, just what goes on. I talk to a lot of people that, that see moose, hunt, moose hunters, and I'll ask them, do you know what a, a moose a rut pit is? Or do you know what some of this behavior is? And they're like, no, I don't know what that is because they don't stick around long enough for, to see that. When you're out there doing what we do, we get to observe so much life history about every species that we shoot. Mm. So I think that's something that's cool about, as opposed to hunting, it's it's a pretty cool way to approach. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you know other folks who have made that transition, Jason, or are you kind of outlier amongst the hunting folk you know? Um, no, actually quite a few of my close friends and some of my mentors even are absolutely in that same category. You know, we, we talk about it quite a bit. I mean, I'm still a hunter. I enjoy wild game meat and I try to provide for my family with that pure protein. And, and so I still am a hunter at heart and I still try to make time to go hunt every year. But many of the folks that I shoot with and from many of my friends, and like I said, a couple of my mentors, um, are absolutely from the same, most of the people I know and interact with directly came up to photography that same way oh, that's great that's great yeah. yeah so Ron, now it's your turn man where did uh how did you get your start in this well in photography as as a kid like mike said i carried a 110 everywhere i went and i'm sure in my mom's desk drawer there's probably several of those cassettes still in there that have never been developed <laughs> right. um when i was in seventh grade 
my mom got me one of those Kodak disc cameras and they were pretty much worthless. They didn't have, <laughs> they didn't have rolls of film. They had a little disc that you would put in there and you had like, I don't know, 14 or 15 shots. And I have a, a pretty good, um, portfolio of what I like to call ode to harshly lit sagebrush. <laughs> when I would go out with my grandma, she just had an eye and, and kind of developed my love of, of nature. My great uncle was the director of the game and fish department and a couple other uncles worked for the game and fish department. So I thought that was kind of a natural thing for me. Um, I grew up on a cattle ranch also, but I didn't want to be a rancher. So I went the, the biology route started working for the game and fish department and you know we had a couple things happen this pine martin there was this tree leaning about 45 degrees and the pine martin would run up the tree and then he'd like do front flips off trying to smack the pine cones that were hanging on this dead snag and he did this like six or seven times and then that same trip it was i was doing a, a fisheries trip the same trip there was this moose swimming through you know, this lily pad marsh lake and he would go all the way under and come up in the water, run off the velvet antlers and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where I kind of decided I'd like to be able to take those memories back and share them with other people. And that's kind of what got me started with wildlife photography. Uh, borrowed my father-in-law's, uh, pretty sure it was a Minolta camera. I can't remember for sure. Um, but I borrowed, yeah, it was a Minolta camera because that's that's the first camera that I bought was Minolta for that reason. Borrowed that, took it up the mountain in uh, Glacier National Park to photograph mountain goats. And I was, I've even told these guys I was way ahead of my time because I took like 200 images of a on a 36 image roll of film because it didn't attach, the tab didn't didn't connect or didn't latch. Ah. And so I got all the way back and realized that and had to go back up the mountain. But that's where I was hooked. And my my brother started calling me Marty Stoffer because we couldn't go anywhere without me busting out the Sony Handycam and filming whatever we saw. And I looked back at, at that stuff and I thought it was great and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but the experience was great. But right? the experience is great yeah. and the memories are great. Yeah, no complaints yeah. there. That's kind of where it started, and, and like these guys, you know, got my biology degree and uh, love to spend as much time out there as I could, so I might as well be capturing something Yeah. while I'm doing it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I was, uh, and I was talking to a friend on his podcast a while ago, and he's in the sport of triathlon, and he often interviews people, and he talks to them, say, okay, how'd you get into sport and something, and people say, well, you know, I was, I didn't knew nothing about triathlon. I just saw this uh race or something and all of a sudden it just clicked i knew i wanted to do that and i think i mean that's how i felt about photography when i just saw you could take pictures and do these things and interact with wildlife it was just a spark for me and i think i think sometimes it's hard to explain where it comes from right i mean for all of us we just Mm -hmm. had that once we had the we're exposed to it we just wanted to to do this well and looking through outdoor magazines and that kind of thing too you see Mm -hmm. the images and man i'd love to be able to do that and i've got a book downstairs actually that has images i've looked looked through it recently because i knew that eric roof had some images in there but i also found an image from mark raycroft in that book (laughs) and uh from up in northern alberta Mm. and 
so those those are the kind of images that inspired me. I didn't. I never knew Mark inspired me until I went back through the book to look. <laughs> can, can we do one of those uh, audio repeats? Mark inspired me. I'm wrong. The, the difference between Mark and Mike and and maybe Jason too is I never went through the rejection phase. Hmm. Uh, my mom loved every image I ever took, <laughs> whether the, they were blurry or not. Moms are the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great that's what they're there for i thought it'd be good to do an introduction in a specific order there but from now on you guys just jump in anytime unless i am well, directing the question that. specifically at you <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything now like is there anything uh that you wish you had known early in the game when you were starting out in those early years that you know now that's clear to you that maybe wasn't clear to you then or key pieces of gear you, <laughs> you, you wish you could have had that i think i put a lot of limitations on myself and i would get scared about trying something right and mostly it was about travel it's like i really want to go here but i don't know if i could figure that out i don't know if it i can do that i don't know if i remember the first trip i planned to alaska it was such the cluster because i didn't know what i was doing but it takes doing that to figure out that it can be done right so you go and you screw it up and the example is we would go to denali on a photo permit it's over now but when before it ended there was a precise way to do it and you could maximize your time in the field. But the very first time I did it, we would camp one night and we would stay in town one night. And if you are staying in town, that's a 90-mile drive out every every other day. And it's like, why am I doing this? So it was that, just that learning process. You know, it's just be willing to just go do it. And once you do that a few times, then you get more willing to just be like, okay, we're just going to figure this out. We're just going to try it. Yeah, you got to make the leap, right? That's the hardest part, isn't it? Yeah, you just got to be, you know, and I think, I don't know, I referred to kids these days earlier, but I think there's a lot less apprehension on younger people now. So hopefully it'll be easier for, for newer people that that get into it because there isn't as many questions. I can remember thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Anchorage and there's going to be dirt streets and Model T's driving down the road or what, you know, who knows? I mean, you see all these pictures and you see stuff, but, you know, is there going to be a Safeway or is there going to be a Best Buy or... And of course, all that stuff's there. It's no different than any other major North American city. But how would I have known that in the, well, I guess that would have been in the 90s, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, information is just so readily available now. I mean, I remember planning expeditions to the Arctic back in those days. And like, you know, we were corresponding by phone and mail with people to try to figure out how to do things, you know. And and I think about that now it's 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 just amazing to me and how difficult it was to try to figure out those sorts of things and and I, I give full marks to people who went out and did those things back in those days when it was a lot harder right it took a lot of tenacity right and uh now i think you can just go deeper because it's so much easier to get that information you'd be more spe- specific you can dig in and maybe not flail around as much and maybe produce something uh memorable faster one hopes well, to do what you did, I mean, just you did it all from maps, right? Paper maps. Oh, yeah, yeah, all maps. Yeah. And now you could go to Google Earth and just actually see where you're going. You could fly the whole route. It's crazy. And then to go back another generation, I remember corresponding with, uh, I had this lovely uh, letter correspondence with Farley Mullet before he died. And I remember uh, talking to him about, you know, he'd be, he, when he was up in the Arctic at some point, like they literally paddled off the map. The area wasn't mapped. They just paddled well, the, like that. Was, the world was flat back then. <laughs> That's Is that what right. you're saying? That's, right. That's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> but imagine that. Imagine being in a place. like it, It's inconceivable now that you could just go somewhere and we don't know anything about it. 
at least, you know, the Western people didn't know any better. I'm sure there's plenty of people in the area. The indigenous people knew everything there was to know, but right. I mean, that just fascinated me. Just totally different world now. Well, and I think we just, talk about it in those terms right now, right? But then think about the people like Lewis and Clark mm-hmm. or any of the early explorers in Alaska, the sourdough boys that climbed uh, Mount McKinley in one day from Wonder Lake. I mean, it's just all those things that they were doing back in the 30s, 40s, where they didn't no even Gore-Tex. have maps. No Gore-Tex, exactly. No Gore-Tex. Yeah. They were wearing and those guys, I mean, those guys didn't take any photos at all. No. You no. Know? Jeez. That's how they did it in one day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's the thing that I think about. Any any of you guys? You Mark, you were gonna say something. I was just gonna say to stop and just think for a moment what it would be like or what it was like to research these trips with no internet. There's no yeah. such thing as the internet. And that's what Tim was alluding to was, you know, the the first time I had a Denali permit. It was that kind of thing where I heard of another photographer who had been there. So I phoned him, fingers crossed, hoping he'd be willing to share some insight on how to do this because it was such a coveted, rare opportunity to have nine special interior camping days. And I was so intense to make the most of it. And, you know, uh, he was Tom, Tom Kitchen was his name, and he was very supportive uh, in sharing information and just got me so excited because he said this permit can make your career I'm like what Boy. okay <laughs> you know and so if there's something i've learned along the way and i think it comes also with um all these years of photographing and and what my portfolio is there's not as much pressure but that first trip was mind-blowing as far as the potential of being there but it was also super intense for me because I was so invested in becoming mm. emotionally invested in becoming a professional wildlife photographer that I, I had a lot of pressure put on myself, which detracted potentially some from the experience compared to the when I go now. I mean, you can't help but be overwhelmed in that landscape and enjoy it. But I, it's something I purposefully and with ex- the life experience I have take a lot more time off when the light's not good to simply enjoy the finer details and the, the magnitude of everything of being there. So that's something that I learned along the way was just the intensity of of the desire to make this profession at times wasn't overwhelming, but was more than I allow it to be now as well. I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, I've always thought as a, somebody who's not a professional photographer, I've, I've often thought when you're in difficult situations and you just can't seem to, to get anything good, that, you know, man, if I was on assignment right now or if I was having to, you know, pay some bills with this trip, man, that was sure would be stressful. And, you know, I admire you guys who take that on and persevere because, uh, you know, you're in the minority nowadays. And, and maybe there's a reason for that. You know, it's tough. Really tough. It gets tougher every day because things are changing so quickly. And yeah. I mean, it, when I was a kid, I'm like Jason. I was kind of a late adopter in life. But when I was a kid, you'd drive through Yellowstone National Park and you didn't see any long lenses. There was right. nobody out there. And if they were, they were in the backcountry somewhere. Mm. And now you go through Yellowstone Park, there's a 600 poking out of every windshield, right. you know, or, or Grand Teton. It's it's just insane the the way that technology is caught up to society or society's caught up to technology and everybody has access to that good equipment. And they're getting themselves out there. So now the challenge is 
you know, who's willing to walk instead of drive the highway and, and who's willing to sit for 10 days waiting for something to happen versus the person that just wants to drive out there and get what they can get in a day. Yeah. Yeah, so for sure. Just to get those rare opportunities captured. And I wish, you know, Mike, Mike was talking about uh, mentors before. I wish I knew there were other people that did it. Yeah. When I started, I didn't know anybody. And then I find out a friend of mine from high school, Sam Zerke, he was a little bit younger than me, but Sam started photographing very early on and was pretty successful at it. And I wish I would have known that even, you know, that Sam was doing that and, you know, the two of us could have gotten together and I would have learned a lot quicker, but that that's the only thing that I wish. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. If I had known, if only I had known that this was actually a thing, you know, I just had no exposure to that whatsoever until much later in life. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Absolutely. I think yeah. that's why these young kids nowadays can get in there and actually make it, make some really good images rather quickly, just because the mm-hmm. technology's there, all the mm-hmm. information's there. They see other people doing, there's plenty of mentors out there. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it just speeds up that learning process and you can actually go out and, and it just makes that bar, you know, just raises the bar every time too. Oh, oh man. Some of these kids on Instagram, they're like, you know, they're galleries and they're 18 and 20 years old. And there's, I mean, A and I, I'm like, wait, how do you, how did you afford that camera? But they're also, <laughs> they're producing amazing stuff, yep. you know, yep. it, it really is impressive. Yeah. Jason, do you have anything to add there? Because otherwise I got another question to fire at you guys. I do real quick. I would only just add that I'm going to actually say there's not a lot I would change. Mm. And I'm just going to say it from the standpoint that every single struggle I had and every mistake I made made me who I am today. So, I mean, I don't know if I'd trade any of that, even though it was painful at times for sure. (laughs) Um, a, A lot of the time it was painful. but And it's still painful from time. I've got so much to learn. It's not even funny. But... The one thing I would say is that I wish I'd have learned to shoot in manual sooner. Mm. And I wish I would have um, learned to invest in the right equipment up front. I would have saved myself a lot of money over the years. Yeah, those those are those are really that's really good advice. I mean, I bought a lot of shoddy stuff, shoddy equipment over the years just because it was cheap. And yep. you, know, you, you pay a price for that. You end up buying the stuff twice, right? Buy good yep. gear, buy it once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the thing yeah. is, too, with wildlife is... A lot of stuff you're going to see once in your lifetime, yeah. you know, and if you're shooting with substandard, substandard <laughs> stuff, you're going to get the shot. But if you'd have been shooting with, you know, whatever the, the best thing is at the moment, you know, but I guess that's what's good too about the stuff keeps getting better. So it keeps giving us a reason to keep going out. You know, that was yeah. always the knock on wildlife photography is back in the film days is a bear is a bear is a bear, right? How many more bear pictures can we have? They're all the same. We're all taking the same stuff. It's the same film. It's the same lenses. It's the same bear. It's the same hair. It's the same fur. It's, you know, (laughs) there's no reason. We got plenty. But now these resolutions keep going up. The requirements keep going up. So that just gives a reason to keep going out and keep getting more stuff and and enjoying those experiences over and over and over. Uh, Absolutely. I I remember talking to the filmmaker, Jeff Turner, when he was – shooting the uh, Great Bear Rainforest IMAX film. And, and he was shooting some B-roll stuff of, you know, leaves rolling down the, you know, floating down the river and stuff. And I was like, geez, you must have a lot of that. He's like, oh, yeah, because, you know, first we had to shoot it on, I don't know, Super 8. And then we had to shoot it on, 
you know, whatever the next increment was all the way up to at that point, they were shooting six or eight K, right? right. It's just got, you know, at every stage of the way, you kind of got to do it all over again for, in his world. So yeah, yeah fascinating. So that's the fun you. of it too. I mean, you get to right. get to have an excuse to do it over and yes, I'm going to, Michael brought up film. So <laughs> just to quickly and try to succinctly efficiently tell the story 50 speed Velvia film right very different experience than what the technology is these days well say it's what phenomenal. it is 50 speed ISO <laughs> 50 ISO film Velvia that was the best it was the only well a Provia 100 push to 200 was in there when we needed it as mm -hmm. far as slide film 50 speed so why I mention it is there were so every day every day we would watch wildlife do stuff before we could photograph it because it was too dark. Phenomenal yeah. events. Early morning, the moose are sparring. They're, they're feeling the friskiness of the frosty morning. We're just watching our clock and they're like, come on, light, come on, light, come on, light. Can we start? No, too slow, too slow. That's all gone. I would, right. to be able to go back and, and have some of those experiences and be able to shoot at 800 or 1,000 ISO the portfolios would have just ballooned so much faster. I mean, there were some awesome, simply viewing opportunities because we couldn't photograph. Mm -hmm. And that almost doesn't exist now. So the, the profession has changed so dramatically and in many ways so wonderfully. But the cost of film kept so many people, well, kept the majority of people out of it. There needed to be funding to pay for all the film for professionals. And that's where it took a while to get into the profession. And once someone was in, that was the important thing was that it paid for the film and travel. Now, as you, as Michael brought up earlier, people should have the best equipment they can afford because for the most part, prices have come down in equipment, but there's no cost of film anymore. Mm -hmm. People can shoot an infinite amount of images, whatever to their heart's desire play with compositions, play with exposures, shoot mirrorless and, and what you see is what you get. What <laughs> stuff? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it's so different. You know, um, recent podcast with Bernd from Norway, he, he would, had just done his first trip, I believe, with the Canon R5. And he said it was almost like he was cheating. Mm -hmm. Now it's not, but the difference from those days of having a manual lens <laughs> No autofocus, no stabilization on a tripod with 50 ISO film to now. I love what we can do now, but there's some minor level of pain and twinge of what we missed back then, or what we could have filmed, right? So the technology, and when things switched to digital from film, I mean, I believed it would get to be as good as film someday. Never would have imagined it would have surpassed film to this extent. What do you guys think? Like, what would like a the megapixel equivalent of Velvia B. Do you guys have any idea? No, uh, I would say like a 12. I, I like animal behavior, megapixel. Tim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think, Michael? Like 20 megapixels, something like that? I, I'd say between like 12 and 20. I, I mean, back in those days, you would shoot a slide and then you would get it scanned, you know, on a Tango scanner. And then you would take that scan. And then I don't think you could blow up anything bigger than what? 30 by 40 at the most and have something that was usable. So, you know, nowadays, I mean, the sky's the limit. I don't think there's a limitation really. You know, it, it's so interesting. It. Oh yeah. That's, now, right? that's totally a new, that's a, sorry to cut you off. I didn't mean to Tim. It's just, it's just a whole new frontier of, of what can be done in post now as well. It's, I, I saw this, um, 
YouTube thing by a guy who was an ex NASA scientist. And he said, you know, everybody's talking about the advances in camera equipment. And he's like, I'm here to tell you the biggest advancement in photography is the computer. He's like, you right now are watching this video on a machine that is far more powerful than anything I ever used when I worked at NASA. And he's like, let me show you what I mean. And he, and he brought this, not even a nice composition. This is this photograph that was really overexposed of some Southwest scene. And he walked you through his editing process. And the, 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 the difference between the start and the finish was absolutely flabbergasting. You couldn't believe. And it was like so incredibly convincing about how the uh, computer really is this um, almost endless uh, tool that we can use. But just backing, jumping back in history again there to what Mark was saying, something I find really interesting is looking back at old photo books and old National Geographics and looking at some of the images and thinking about the constraints these folks had. You know, I remember looking at this series of images by Michio Hoshino, the Japanese photographer. I mean, he was amazing, right? Just amazing. And yeah. I remember seeing this, this series of images where there was a grizzly bear up in Alaska chasing a ground squirrel. And, you know, they're not tack sharp, but man, they are pretty good. And you know this guy's using a manual focus lens, right? And it is like, you know, you look at that and it's just like, wow, that was an incredible amount of skill. You know, and I just give full marks. It's pretty neat, I think, to look back at those old shots and see what people were capable of doing. So is there, for any of you guys, is there like, uh, is there anything that stands out in your mind as some of your, your first images or your first body of images that really stood out as something you were proud of? That you were like, oh yeah, I'm getting this, I got this. You know, was there anything in particular or was it just sort of a progression along the way where you're proud of this one day, then a month later you're kind of bored of it and so on? I still might, the one I... <laughs> took with my dad sheep image it was a sony alpha i think it was their first digital and they bought the minolta mount so i had a a sigma one i think it was what 150 to 500 and it was probably a 7.1 lens at the at 500 and um yeah i just it was blind luck because mm. i i was shooting in auto and these, this ram chased a U up through this little gap in the rocks, and I was snapping away, and Jim Ewell, another photographer from Wyoming, is standing right behind me with his 800 and couldn't get it because he had too much lens. Huh. And just as they came up through the gap, the snow was glistening, you know, in the sun as it's kicking up from the hooves, and um, I still like that shot even today. Yeah. And number one, it was blind luck. Number two, it was taken on pretty inferior equipment. Right. But it turned out great. How many years ago was that? About? Oh. That would have been 2010 or 2011. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can sit here and think of... So I had the discussion one time with, a, with another wildlife photographer. And you... I think every photographer might get... Well, there's going to be some difference, but I think over your lifetime, if you could have five to 10 iconic images where somebody mm -hmm. sees an image and they know that, know that it's yours, like with mm -hmm. each one of these guys, I can, I can name a, an iconic image for each one of them that I know that they have. I mean, there's probably many more that I don't know about, but I know a picture of Mark. I know a picture of Jason. I know a picture of Ron. And I think if you look at your body work after what, say 40 years, you should have four or five, five to 10, let's say five to 10, mm -hmm. just 
iconic images. And sometimes it's going to be the behavior you caught, or sometimes it's just going to be the situation that you were in as far as the light. Everything just came together just right, right? I, mean, I think there are few, the, those really iconic images are few and far between. Can you, can you pick out the ones of your own? Do you feel like you have a sense of what your most iconic images are? Because I, I think, like, I think it was Mark saying earlier, sometimes we have blind spots to our own work. You know, you've been in this game a long time. You've got to have your share of your, your, your small cache of iconic images there. Yeah, I do. I have some that I've never even put out anywhere, you know, but then you have the ones that you're like, oh, I sold this for, you know, $20,000 or whatever. The very first picture I ever sold to a magazine was 20000 It was a set of pictures, but it was more about the behavior. So I would consider that kind of like an iconic image where, and then I've got a few others that, you know, but I think over the course of my career, I can think of probably five to 10 that I would consider iconic that everybody would consider iconic. Not the pictures like we referred to earlier where it was just really hard to get or there's a story that means something to us, but an image that just stands by itself. Speaks for itself. So, so look you said on, some uh, of those... Look on the Truth and Legend Instagram page from what, yesterday or the day before? Oh. <laughs> well, actually, this is coming out later, but you won't have to look very far back. Beginning of December... And look at Michael's moose shot from Alaska. That's a pretty stinking iconic image. Oh, the one that's on the screen? Yeah. He wouldn't post the actual picture. He just posted <laughs> the picture of the computer screen. <laughs> but it's still good. It, that photo, I just saw it yesterday, and it stopped me in my tracks. It is amazing. And the, I mean, it's just there's so many elements of that picture that are just... Yeah, it's just like it's arresting, right? It's it's just it's 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 exquisite. And then Mike says here in his caption, he says, you know, I seriously need to brush up on my Photoshop skills. And then you scroll down, and Drew Hamilton says, well, it looks like you photoshopped that moose in there just fine. <laughs> I, I just gave Drew full marks for that. I thought that yeah. was the best one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what speaks to that for that image? I do, th I do like that image, and I would consider that one of the better images that I've taken. But I photographed moose for 40 days straight. Right. So I was on moose every day for 40 days straight. <laughs> so think about the amount of time that I spent, the amount mm -hmm. of images I shot. I don't even know how many I shot. Mm -hmm. And I think there's probably three out of that whole 40 days that I would consider awesome. That I won't put out on social media or I won't, you know, it, it'll hopefully be in a, a gallery someday or something. Well, that, that was one of my questions because you said for some of your icon, your most iconic images, you said they've not been published and or not been put on social media. Are you just holding on to those for sort of fine art reproductions or, or how come? I don't know. See, that's the dumb thing about it. It's like I did that with footage, too. I've got footage that I just held on to and it's so dumb because I never sold it and I could have sold it. And then. Yeah. But it's like we talked about with the. The changing of the resolutions now that footage is worthless i mean it's still important to me but it's not it doesn't have a market for it so you really gotta kind of images are different than video though but i i think i don't know i think secretly it'd be nice to have a gallery someday or have a showing yeah. you know be with your peers where everybody has one of their iconic images that just in, in a room full of those would be pretty amazing and do you I don't have, know. you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, cause it's, it's interesting to me cause there's something about those images that you've got there that they're, it's beyond the value of just selling them somewhere. 
you're holding on to them for some reason, right? You got some emotional right. attachment or something. That's it's interesting. Like, do you even have them in your home? Like, have you printed them in your home? No, they sit on a hard drive, but they sit on about ten hard drives. Yeah, I was just gonna ask. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then you spread them out. No, I actually I did that that one that I was talking about with the Photoshop stuff. I did send that one out. But a lot yeah. of it's the fear of sending it out too, right? It's like yeah. back in the day, you'd worry about a slide getting lost. But nowadays, it's like that's just digital information. How many people are going to see that? Now, I got to have trust and faith in the whole process. But nobody's going to steal that image along the way and print their own. You know, mm-hmm. you want to kind of hold the control of that. But I don't yeah. know. It's just weird, the whole thing. But someday, somehow, I'll find a use for it. Yeah. Jason and I were... Jason and I were having a conversation not long ago and it's, you know, in your, in your first year, what Michael just said about having four or five images over a 40 year career in your first year, you probably have a hundred iconic images, right? Because <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> your eye isn't finely tuned or you're not, you're not as critical of yourself as you are at, in year 10, year 20. Yeah. And I think honestly, the longer I do it, it's harder to, get the image that you want because you just you're seeking that much more perfection in everything that you do and it just has to be you know that jason's and i i think probably this is one of the shots that michael's thinking of for jason but his shot of that elk coming out of the light you know jason how long did you wait for that of that that week or that morning you you saw it coming you saw <laughs> oh, yeah 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 you know no, it, it, it took about an hour to unfold i saw the situation and the conditions right but yeah it took about an hour to and i got lucky that it unfolded you know there was a lot of luck right. there for sure yeah how easy could a cow run off another direction and he turned and yep. chased her yep well and that just yeah. speaks yeah. to the 40 days right i mean it's just like yep. you, the yeah. more time you put yourself in that position the more successful you're going to be you yeah. just got to have the time and the dedication and the perseverance. And it's just like doing a podcast for four years. Oh, yeah, I'd have, well, exactly. I'd have to learn which shrubs I could eat. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's absolutely right, Michael. I think, you know, you, you put in the time and then all of a sudden you get lucky. Isn't that funny? You put in the time and all the work over years and years, and then you get lucky to get a shot like that, that moose photo there. But it's interesting too, like what Ron was saying, something I noticed is that, um, you know, even even on like, say you've got a trip, you're going somewhere to photograph somebody specific, you know, in your first couple of days, you might think you got a, you know, even within the course of that trip, that process you were discussing, Ron, about how you think you got a lot of great stuff at the start. Um, you know, that can be over the course of years of a career, but even within like a week long trip somewhere at the start, you think you got some great stuff. And then you and then you realize that, yeah, you kind of got just the run of the mill stuff that everybody has. And then you're trying to get something more unique and interesting over the course of those, maybe only the few days that you have there. And then maybe you're driven to go back again the next season and the next season, because you realize that there's more work to do there. And to me, that's, that's the interesting process, right? It just, it keeps going. And that's where the creative vision can really take over. I think that's totally it. I think you just got to persevere and just keep keep doing it and i've always said when you go do a shoot like that if you're there for 10 days the best images are going to come on eight nine ten day eight nine mm-hmm. ten just because mm-hmm. you do you have it figured out you kind of you've got kind of a handle on what the possibilities might be where the light's going to be the best where you've been seeing stuff and that's and that's and that's interesting for folks who are you know that's a real challenge for people who are amateur maybe they can only do one trip a year Right, you got one trip a year. You're going to some iconic spot. You're going to Churchill to shoot polar bears or something. 
man, that's going to be hard for you to get something iconic. That, does, of course, does not mean you're not going to have an amazing experience. I mean, you know, seeing your first polar bears is amazing always. But uh, it's just, it's a lot tougher when you don't have the flexibility in your life to get more time in the field, you know? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So speaking on, on, on that note, is there any, um, you know, Mark and I were talking, it'd be interesting to hear, like, you know, there's some of these ones where you really, like, there's a particular, you know, image or group of images that you really, really had to grind for to get it versus those ones that somehow just kind of fell in your lap. Any stories about those for many of you? You know, the memories of whether they fall into my lap or or have to work for them, if they're they're they both. Like, oh, I am I am just stumbling all kinds of words here tonight. Ron, you summarized that so well <laughs> a minute ago about starting someone starting their career versus somebody with experience and how they perceive that. I tried earlier. All right, here we go. As far as grinding for it, I think there is some greater reward of a day with a lot of physical exertion when things come together versus something that's just easy. And uh, so this week I was in Algonquin Park and I found a bull moose and he was roadside and collected some wonderful images. I love the results, very pleased with that, but it won't resonate the same as if I'd been in five kilometers or, or a long way in the interior and had this happen and, and worked harder for it. And I think that's one of the reasons I love caribou so much or the doll sheep hikes that we do. There's, there's an effort involved and, and there's a change of our surroundings as well on a trip like that from when we start to the elevation, to the effort. And then when we find the animals and, and obviously with wildlife photography, it doesn't always fall into place and come together, but when it does the combination of physical exertion and the success of the light, the weather, the animal behavior and images make it a more powerful emotional memory for us. And if we, on the marketing side, if we can relay that properly to an audience, uh, whether it's doing a presentation, whether it's through an article where you can elaborate on the effort involved, you can share the, the effort so that there's that appreciation for that body of work too, greater than something that's more commonplace, right? So I, there's there's something to it on that side as well in the storytelling. And the vlogs, you know, the vlogs that we did with Tyler Burr going up for the doll sheep, it was great adventure because we did a, at that time, we were just starting with our YouTube channel and we did these short two to three minute clips mm -hmm. and... Tyler did four of them on that hike. But what was fun was the excitement beginning of the hike. We're all, you know, filled with anticipation. It's a beautiful day. We're by the river. We're going to hike up this mountain, but we have no idea what's going to unfold. The first three, two or three videos may not ever get made public because we didn't find the sheep. But when it all comes together, the whole story and the effort involved uh, makes it more powerful to an audience and, and, of course, to ourselves. That's, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's funny, isn't it? How when you work for something, you know, anything, whether it's a photograph or whatever pursuit you're in, it, it is more rewarding. Like there's times when I've done things that are, you know, high, high amount of work, low chance of success. And I come back with the photos that are not that, not that great. And then I compare them to somebody else who's got some photo that I know they shot at the roadside or something. And it sort of hurts a little bit because you're like, wow, that's a magnificent <laughs> images. And mine are terrible. But somehow it feels like I still want to go back and bushwhack and, and, and try again, even though I know my chances of success are really small, 
I don't know. It's strange. I think that's going to, I feel like I'm coming during the conversation, but I feel like that is going to be the next level of photography. I think while you can cruise the road in Rocky Mountain National Park or Yellowstone or Denali or anywhere and get some good images, those iconic images might be a camera trap that is 10 miles back. You know, something like yeah. that where, and it's not, you're not even going to be there when the picture was taken. It's all your effort that got the picture, but you're going to rely on technology to, to get the picture that is going to be this thing that you probably would never see, you know, for mm-hmm. yourself because of the situation or whether it's a, a Wolverine on the top of a ridge somewhere and you just kind of know that this is the path and I'm going to set up this camera here and it's going to sit for weeks if not months and that one day that that wolverine passes and stops and the light's just right and you can see this glacier Mm. and you can see this mountain those are the the images that i think are gonna set you apart i like the sound of that image (laughs) that that sound almost you know it reminds (laughs) me of some of uh peter mather i'm never sure if it's mather or mather but he's he's got some images almost almost like he described and they're because you understand my the effort he must have gone in yeah. To do that. I mean, the image speaks for itself, but, but then when you think of the backstory behind it, it just, it's pretty amazing. But, um, you know, I, I want to back up a little minute here because I don't know if I ever heard from Jason and Ron about sort of their, uh, their, their images, their own personal iconic images that they're most proud of. Did we, did we, did you guys have something to add there? I don't, I think I feel like I skipped over you. Go ahead, Jason. Um, you know, I've got a couple images that I feel like you know, Ron mentioned the one that I was really proud of or whatever you want to call it. For me, it's been interesting. I'm I'm fairly new in this. I think I've been doing photography seriously now with, you know, with a lot of effort and energy um, trying to do it more professionally for about four years now. So I don't I mean, I've been shooting for about six, seven years, but really into it for about four years for the last four years. Sorry. And so I don't have that body of work yet. Right. I mean, I've been trying to get out and build that body of work, but I don't have the 20 plus years of experience and, and all those things. So for me, I I try to go out into the field with the idea of creating a couple images that I really have a specific image in mind that I want to create. And the reward to me comes when I'm able to make that happen. So I do have one or two, maybe, maybe two that I would say are iconic images. I've got a lot of years to put in to be able to get that four to five to 10, Um, and I'm looking forward to that, but for now, for me, a lot of it really comes with, like I said, just trying to have a vision in mind and create an image that I really am trying to create and then have all the pieces come together, put myself in the right place at the right time, try to have the foresight to be able to see that coming together and to put myself in the right place to get that image. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that all sounds amazing to me and right on the money. And yet I've seen your Instagram. I mean, you've got some fabulous stuff and I think you're being a little critical of yourself here. Yeah, you, you know, rubbing <laughs> shoulders with uh, some people who are pretty amazing photographers, and so you know it's hard not to compare oneself. But uh, yeah, that'll make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, well, I think one like, thing that just to jump in real quick about what yeah. Jason does is I think he learned really quick the value of the light, right? Mm-hmm. And he and I think I've said it on the podcast before, but you can be out with Jason and you can just look at it, just watch him. You know, forget about shooting. Just watch what Jason's doing. And you can just tell he's just like playing this light game. And he's going to put himself in that position where the light's going to be the best. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, then he doesn't get any images. But 
he's going to get a banger image because of what he's thinking about. And I think that is one of the things that's going to, you know, just some people haven't, some people don't as far as being able to just pick up on that. It took me a long, long, long time to figure that out. He's figured it out in very short order. It's, it's interesting that you say that Thank because you. I was talking to Mark on the phone the other day and he said something very similar about Jason and his relationship to light and the way he works it. So coming from both you guys, uh, take that, Jason. Well, that means a lot. Trust me. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that, guys. Composition, yeah. too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where you are four years in for serious effort. I was not at four years in for serious effort. <laughs> I was still seeing blurry black and white. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that a lot comes back to the conversation we had about technology and what's available and all that too. So you know, uh, you have a fantastic eye for light and composition and just the animal behavior and some of you know, I'm drawn to a lot of the same species you are most passionate about, and you capture powerful images of them. So if I, I love seeing your work all the time. Big hug, virtual hugs across the <laughs> Skype world. High fives. You guys want us to mute and <laughs> No, we want to hear your story. Is there anything you want to throw in there, Ron? Yeah. Well, I I talked about that sheep image yep. that I kind of lucked into, but I think intentionally I've got to agree with Mark that um and most of the effort that went into this shoot happened well before. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to be an instructor at the Law Enforcement Academy competitive athlete and was in really good shape and then i took a job as a banker and it didn't do me any favors <laughs> mm -hmm. so knowing that this trip was coming up and knowing that you know we could be walking 10 to 20 miles a day um i did a lot of preparation ahead of time when we went to uh denali a couple of years a couple of years back was it two years or three two i think two years Just back two. yeah and, uh, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to be prepared for is if we had the opportunity for doll sheep, I wanted to be ready for that. And I didn't want anything physically to be a limitation. I wanted to be able to get where we needed to get. And uh, we we had a day where the, the weather kind of um, was a great contributing factor to the decision to head up the mountain and go after these sheep. And we had seen several rams in this area, didn't really know what size they were. Um, so we just took off and we, like Mark said, we documented it all the way up, took off, got up to the top and, and honestly going up, the preparation was great. I felt good, but the adrenaline of just getting to those rams was because it's something that I had never done. It shot me up the mountain pretty quick. And I got one image that I'm really happy with, you know, several, several images we shot for. I don't know, an hour and a half probably with this little band of, of rams. But the one that I was really happy with is there was two rams kind of out on this rim. And you can look back through Mark's feed and he got some great images of those two rams. But there was one that went up higher and I kind of just saw, I looked across and saw the background um, that was going to be behind him. And so I just, I skipped all those images that were down below with both rams and I just headed straight up, you know, up the mountain trying to get above him where I'd be able to shoot this big grand vista. And wouldn't you know it, he he got up, they were they were kind of circling around this big rim point 
and they were bedded down or started bedding down behind the rim point. And so I, when I got up to, you know, the, the elevation that would allow me to basically be eye level with him, um, he made his way right to the edge of the point mm. and he kind of turned and three quarter looked back and it was just perfect. Wow. But it, you know, it's like Jason said earlier, he could, he could have just head down, grazed his way around that point, and I wouldn't have gotten anything but a butt shot of a of a white ram. You know, but when when he looked back and everything kind of came together right at that perfect moment, you know that's what it's all about: putting in the effort and then having it pay off. And then the other part of that same trip is we walked several times, and I I think it was what six or seven miles to get to the, or five or six miles to get to the start of this caribou area um, where there'd been some bulls. And then of course you gotta, you gotta figure out how to get to the caribou and get in a position where you can get a shot. And this bull, same thing, you know, walked up there and this bull was feeding. You just see the top of his antlers, but in the direction that he was feeding with, and I was with uh, the hedges, uh, Barrett hedges and Barrett, you know, he said, they're going to feed right up on this rim. And so we, we decided to go through this cut so we wouldn't spook him and went through the cut and then just sat there and waited. And sure enough, he fed right to us. And, you know, Denali is behind him. Pretty decent light. Vegetation was beautiful. You know, good color. It was in, in the autumn and, and great color in the vegetation up there on the tundra with the reds and oranges and and then to get to get the mountain behind this it was a big mature bull and that was you know two images from that trip that you know we got some good moose images as well but two images from that trip that you know the effort makes them worth a lot more makes them more valuable to me than you know what we might have gotten on a road anywhere and that's that's amazing i mean i can i mean that's that's just it. I mean, that's the whole excitement of wildlife photography. I can visualize that entire thing, the way you're describing it, and like the way that ram just turned its head and like, boom, click, you're right there. I mean, that is just, those are the moments, right? They're far and few between. And because they're far and few and far between, they're just magic, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's why they, yeah, they burn such a deep hole in your, in your psyche, in your memory. Yeah. Yeah. Those well, are I think moments. it's those two things, right? It's, it's Jason looking at the light, yeah. waiting on that light. And it's Ron predicting the scene, right? And you're willing to make that prediction and and fail, but if you don't fail, it's it, that's the win, right? Yeah. And if you're yeah. willing to to let that happen and not be chasing, you know, how many times do you drive down the road in a national park and somebody is dead even with some animal they're photographing, whereas if they mm-hmm. had just predicted and drove another hundred yards and waited for that animal to come, they would have a much better composition. But then. That's a great- Great pro tip, Michael. Say that. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to get the shot? You know, they're always worried. Well, I got to get the shot that I'm seeing right now. But the better shot is 100 yards down the road. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Ron, Ron is bringing to the table. I mean, you guys have spent so much time in the field, right? And, uh, you know, when, when you do that, things happen, right? You collect stories and images, and but there's lots of other things that happen. I'm curious to hear about your sort of Either, you know, something along the line of, you know, um, when things went terribly wrong, maybe it got scary, maybe it broke a bunch of gears, something bad really happened, and or any particular encounters that really 
struck out or uh, stick out in your mind. Those might be one and the same thing. But uh, I mean, you guys have spent so much time out there. You've got to have some stories that maybe you haven't mentioned on the podcast before. I got to go first. <laughs> as long as it's not the cabin that we shared, Ron. <laughs> no, no, I'm leaving that out. Okay. But it was on the same hike. And I don't, maybe we have talked about this bef- before. Well, on the same hike we went up for the doll sheep, I was, uh, I wanted to cut through this little alder patch and get across to the other side of this little stream where the sheep were. And I, <laughs> I caught my foot on an alder and I was, there was a boulder, a smaller boulder rock that you couldn't see when I initially went in there because it, it was dark, you know, the spot that I went into. And so there was a smaller boulder and then there was a large boulder, a little gap in between them. And as I was climbing up on the small boulder, going to make the jump across to get to where the sheep were, I caught my foot on this alder oh. and tripped. And my, I tried to keep the camera from hitting the rock, but it it hit it slightly. But I, you know, I saved it, saved the tool. Wow. And but I got wedged in between these two rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and my right hand, I, my right shoulder was in between the two rocks and my right hand had the camera in it. So I am completely stuck. (laughs) And Mark's, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm laughing. I couldn't talk because I was laughing so hard because I knew I was in trouble. Cause Mark, there's no way Mark could have gotten to me because I was, my feet were blocking the path that he needed to use to get to where I was. And I was stuck until I figured out how to get my left arm around. I thought that was, that was comical, <laughs> but it, it could have been bad because my the the camera was headed right for the face of that big boulder. Oh man, good save! <laughs> Sorry, as soon as you started asking the question, that's the first thing that popped into the my sacrifice head. the body, sacrifice the body, save the camera. <laughs> good go. job. Yeah, I think that's the first time I've heard the photographer's perspective and use for the "help I've fallen and I can't get up" button. <laughs> That's pretty impressive, Ron. It, it wouldn't have mattered if I had life alert, though, because nobody could have gotten in there. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever had a wildlife encounter that I was leery about. You had one that I was worried about, and I was behind you. <laughs> Where was that? It was in Alaska. We were filming moose, and this... Uh, mature bull spooked and he was he was well away from us you know probably 30 40 yards away from us but there was a cow that had kind of been feeding and she was probably eight to ten yards and she spooked and wheeled right at us oh that's true Hmm. i mean i was good because your tripod was in the way and then you were in front of me (laughs) (laughs) but you could have been in trouble I guess this year we had a situation where we were photographing moose and it was a similar situation and the the moose wasn't coming for us, but the moose was just trying to get away from the bull and she was just like, hey, it doesn't, she's going to run us over like no big deal, right? But she didn't come at me. She went out at this other friend of mine and he had to dive into the alders, but, or the willows. 
I I don't know that I've had an experience. Ron or Mark, you were with me one time in Alaska when we came across that grizzly bear on the trail, right? And the grass was so tall that we couldn't see where the bear was at. Yeah, that wasn't scary, but it was you you know it's just a no win situation. The wind's blowing in the favor our favor, not the bear's favor. Mm. The bear's ahead of us. It's in tall grass, so we can't see the bear. The bear can't see us. We don't know if the bear's going through the grass or on the trail or coming back towards us or going the other direction, you know, and that's one of those situations where the animal always comes first, so you don't ever want to be in a situation. And actually, on that trip, I didn't even take bear spray, so I didn't didn't have anything. I think Jerry had some bear spray with us that time. but I had had spray. Yeah. The bear was nervous because it couldn't smell us it spotted us and we were heading up the valley the same way we had to exit it was evening and otherwise we had to cross a river and we gave it lots of time hoping it would move on ahead and i think three or four times we kind of caught up within sight of it and it wanted it woofed at us and did a bluff charge Mm. because it was confused thinking we were following or stalking it and and it was simply a matter of us being unaware of where it was like you were saying because of the tall grass most of the time it was hidden but it was well over a hundred yards or more ahead of us at all times. And, and it eventually veered off and we were able to go exit the valley. But that was, that was Pilly. My wife was with us. That was her first time with a bear that was nervous around mm. us. So yeah, she, I have a picture of her at the end of that hike and <laughs> she looks very awake and, and happy to be there and very wide eyed. Yeah. And Jerry Harrod was with us on that one too. AK scenic on, uh, on Instagram. But yeah, that was, just a, a patience and like you said put the animal first and but it was there were a lot of unknowns as far as where it was and where it was heading but thankfully it was fine and and it was one of those things where with grizzly bears there's no guarantee but with four people and that's what we had i've heard this on, on many occasions but with a group of four or more they tend to be less curious or or more likely to walk away versus one person so we had that going for us too. But yeah, that was that was one time. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of stories, but I, some of them I'm not sure they should be shared on. <laughs> it's well, just, it can it's, also be. It's like scary stuff are also just like particular encounters that were impactful in one way or another. You know, well, no, I like the scary stuff too. <laughs> okay, that's but good. well, you know, you're you're out there, and it happens because you're in the wilderness. And and as I say to people when I'm giving talks or a presentation, they'll ask if I if I'm afraid of those black bears or grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to preface this, with all the time spent with wildlife, we get to know their behavior. Now we're not telepathic. We're not going to figure it out all the time, and things happen. And sometimes it's just by chance that it happens. And it would happen far more often on the subway if I spent the same amount of time in Toronto or New York City or L.A. with people. There would be incidents happen, in my mind, far more frequently than in the wilderness. But things do happen. Here's a a funny story, a grizzly story as well. A very good friend of mine, uh, Bob Schilleroff from Seattle area, was on a trip with me. We were camping in the interior of Alaska and we spotted a band of caribou bulls maybe three quarters of a mile away. And the way the open country rolls there is you have these plateaus and then they drop down. And wherever there's a bit of an incline, you get these alder thickets, as Ron was describing. You have to pick a game trail to go through these. Otherwise, you're going to spend 10 times the amount of time to get through them and may not come out the other side with your clothes still on or a camera in your hand. So you pick a game trail and go through. Now, my friend 
Bob, he was getting his gear ready and said, go on ahead. So I went a little bit ahead of him. I don't know why. I guess it was the excitement was one of my first trips. But I still, I went down the first section of alders. I went through on a game trail. I found it. I found some depressed areas where an animal had been bedded. Now, when you're in bear country, you talk, right? These caribou were a long way off. I wasn't going to spook them by talking. So I was telling myself a story loud enough that any bear that might be in there would hear. I didn't see any animal at all going through this alder patch. So I walk across the clearing. So it's like a meadow on the tundra for maybe 70 yards or so. And I stopped. And I waited for Bob to come out of the alder so he would see where I descend through the next group. And he comes out and he's talking and he just stops and he looks at me with this really strange expression on his face. I'm like, okay. So I actually waited for him to catch up. And he's like, how did you get over here? He said, you were right beside me in the alders. I was talking to you the whole way. I, I saw you moving. And so there was something in there with him, presumably a bear. And so, yeah, he great guy. Uh, love them, but yeah, we 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 did the rest of the hike together, down to the caribou <laughs> and, and and found them. But things like that happen, and there was nothing bad out of it. I mean, I've I've had those encounters too, but I won't hog the microphone. That was a good story and a funny one, so I'll stop yeah, there. Yeah, oh, that's great. I love that. For me, it's been with elk. I don't know why. I'm, <laughs> I've had I've been charged probably. Well, maybe I shouldn't say this. I'm. <laughs> I've been charged by elk about four or five times, but the specific situation I was in, I've never been, I've never been hurt. You need to come to Canada. That number will change. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> but I'm it's, saying it's always, not that bad. Don't it's be always exciting. It. Oh, it's always yeah. exciting, right? I mean, it gets your blood going and you're like, Ooh boy. But anyways, I've been fortunate to never have been harmed. The, the situation I'm thinking of specifically, which was a really exciting experience was, one of the first times I was able to experience a true rut fest or uh, the situation when there's it's that day of the year where they're the most cows are in heat. There are, you know, six or seven mature bulls in the area and they just decide that it's time to, you know, to decide who's the who's in charge. So me and a friend of mine, Harlan Cooper, who's been on the he's a friend of the podcast, been on the show before. Uh, we're out in the meadow um, photographing these elk and this situation unfolds and we're in a meadow and we're 150 yards from any kind of cover at all. There's no trees, there's nothing. And we're, we end up being in the middle of this, the cows, the cows start to mill around and move. And as we're photographing and stuff, we're not paying close enough attention. And next thing you know, we are in the middle of this group of cows and the bulls decide it's time to decide who's boss and the mayhem breaks loose. And at first we're trying to photograph the situation and realizing that it's so close to us that there's really no point in trying to photograph. So we step back and say, okay, well, let's just kind of watch this unfold. Well, as it starts to unfold, we're having bulls literally locking up and fighting within feet of us. And we got to the point where we're just kind of standing by our tripods and just like trying to like be as skinny as possible and not catch any attention and what's crazy is, is this is all unfolding. I can, there's still moments of that where I, it's like, it's going, it's playing back in slow motion in my mind where the bulls are locking up and then they break up. And then two other bulls that one bull that was fighting turns and locks up with another bull. But the entire time, as you guys know, with your experience with wildlife, those elk see you and they're paying attention to you, even though they're worried about fighting and the cows and everything else, they're still keeping an eye on this weird thing that's out there in the metal with them that they're not used to seeing or whatever right 
So anyways, that, that situation unfolded. And fortunately, it lasted for probably about 10 minutes, dust everywhere. We, we felt very fortunate that nothing ever came of it. And it's a little scary, though, because you put yourself in that situation to try to get a shot. When that kind of situation happens, all it takes is for one of those bulls to decide that you are a threat to their cows. And they mistakenly come at you for a brief moment thinking that you're one of the bulls trying to take a cow and it only takes a moment and then it's over, right? Because it could be that significant, that serious. So that's probably one of the most exciting experiences I had in the wild when I've been doing this photography stuff. But I'll tell you a quick story if it's okay, a funny story. (laughs) This year I was photographing velvet elk and we were by a pond. And long story short, I was standing there waiting for this one bull to get into a situation where I could get the shot I was looking for. And I heard something behind me and I turned around and looked and there was a small raghorn bull that had come up behind me. Well, this is right about the time of year where the velvet's starting to kind of harden a little bit. They're getting kind of, you know, they're starting to feel like it's fall's coming. You know, they're going to start rubbing their velvet here pretty soon. And this little vol- this little bull decided that he was going to push me around. So he literally started kind of walking towards me and putting his head down and kind of testing me. And so I kind of had to yell and scream and wave my hands at him and said, hey, hey, get out of here, you know. And I lifted up my camera and I walked back up the bank. I got away from him. But as I was doing this, there was a gentleman that was down by the lake photographing some, a different situation, and he took a couple of photos of it and thought it was funny and yelled back at me and says, hey, ha I got some shots of that. And I'm like, yeah, cool. I bet you did. Awesome. <laughs> well, <laughs> the elk heard him yelling at me, turned and looked at him, and headed his way. Huh. <laughs> so he he ends up, long story short, pushing There's this guy. There's a video of this, isn't there? There's a that's video. All, I probably can't show it. Instagram, yeah. Probably can't I show think. it because I don't have his permission, but there's a video. So I turned into the camera and I got video of this situation where this young bull went down and harassed him and pushed him into the pond. Wow. And literally, wow. he was waist deep in the water trying to keep his camera dry. And every time he looked at the bull, the bull got aggressive with him. So he just stood there in the water and turned his head away. And the bull finally got bored with him or whatever and walked away. And then the guy came back up. But I, I, I mentioned to him that I might have a video of the situation <laughs> that he might find funny. But uh, wow. he wasn't laughing at the time. But anyways, so yeah. it's, it's you just never know what you're going to experience. That's part of the fun, right? So. <laughs> Absolutely. And, th- and things will happen eventually. You spend enough time out there, you know, things happen for sure. So I, I'm curious to hear um, Mark and I talked about maybe discussing like your favorite species, your favorite locations. Now, I, I'm going to guess for Mark, I mean, we're, we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess he's going to say caribou. And I'm going to guess he's going to say, well, either Alaska or Newfoundland, but I don't know for sure. Mark, am, am, I, am I getting close? They're they're among the favorite. I I can no longer select a favorite species. Yeah, that's a tough one. Be, I, I enjoy elements of all of them. Uh, moose, obviously, I have a I have a little bit of a thing for moose. Uh, and when the whitetail ruts on with, and pre-rut with fall colors in eastern Canada is beautiful, and there's it can be so elusive, and and there's a big thrill to that, and it it goes right back to my beginning. I love filming bears. Elk, the elk rut is fantastic. The the activity, the biology, the behavior, the weather, the seasonality, and the variation from the beginning of color through frost and some snow flurries through that. And then there's caribou. I like caribou because not as many people spend time in caribou country. Mm-hmm. So it's often, and where I find myself, it's often quieter. And so it's a more intimate experience. I mean, you can get back in the woods with a, a bull moose or an elk or 
you know, end up with a, a bear somewhere, things happen. But caribou are something where if I can find a, a group or a band of caribou, I can spend the whole day with them. And if they don't move too far, it could be many days and have the opportunity. So in recent years, I've enjoyed that opportunity because I can work the situation, the various lighting, the behavior. And so, but I can't, I cannot pick a species any longer. It's, mm. and I don't, I don't try to, and I don't try to pick favorite images either that way. I can tell you his favorite though, Tim. <laughs> that's great. It's well, called maybe we charismatic <laughs> megafauna. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's, that's Mark's favorite. That category. Yeah. 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 That favorite category then. Yeah. They all resonate all those species. I mean, a wolf of opportunity, course. you know, things, all that's magical. It just completes the Northern ecosystem for mm -hmm. me is their presence. And I, I feel most alive when I'm in the wilderness with one of these species. And on rare situation too, you know, one, once upon a time, a black wolf was trying to separate a calf from its mother moose cow in Alaska mm -hmm. in film days. I couldn't photograph it, but I could watch it through right. binoculars and, you know, stuff like that. Anyway, phenomenal. That's where I'm happiest. Yeah. No, I that, that wonder about sure. that though. If, if, um, if we were all living in Africa, uh, you know, I wonder if it would just be the African species. Would it be the elephants? Would it be the lions? Would it be, mm. I, you know, I don't know. I think. Leopards, I jaguars. Mean, no, jaguars aren't African. Leopards. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Leopards and cheetahs yeah. and lions. And I don't know. I oh found my. myself the other day watching some special, I don't know, you know, this COVID thing. We're all watching a lot of TV, right? Because <laughs> you're just on Netflix and I'll just watch all the wildlife programming. And I've been to Africa a couple Africa a couple of times, one a couple of times to shoot for somebody else. So I'm just shooting video. So I'm not getting all my own stuff. And then a, a time or two by my, for my stuff. And you get over there with those animals and you just get that same feeling. But knowing that we can't go there all the time, I think that then it just falls off the list. I think it'd be really easy to have the elephants mm. or have the, the lions or have the sable or whatever's over there be your iconic species but since we don't get a chance to do it that's probably why and i think for us in north america it's the northern regions offer the most iconic you know whether it's moose caribou or elk or that sort of thing i don't know because mm -hmm. i think it's hard i think it's this i would have the same answer you had mark but it's interesting though right you, you scroll through like there's some people who like and i really admire these people there's some people i've encountered on instagram who they just do songbirds or just like warblers and their stuff is like, you know, photographing warblers is tough, you know, photographing a moose by comparison is a piece of cake. Right. And some of the stuff, these people, what? Say, hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense to any of us, because we've all been, I see the bus coming. Oh, no, <laughs> just got thrown under. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't directed at you, Mark. No, <laughs> but, no I know. I'm, I'm but why not? Why it. Just aim that at Mark. Well, you're right. No, they're small and fast and, and they can go and, anywhere quickly right yeah but there's some people who get really focused on that and and i'm kind of with you guys it's 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 the grand picture of the life that you want to sort of immerse yourself in right and uh i, I don't pick favorites either but you know some people some people do they're there they pick a, a, a more narrow suite of favorites maybe than others do but how, how about you gentlemen down there uh ron or or sorry yeah, jason ron, I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, really quick for me, I'm, I would have the same answer. But if you'd asked me that question four years ago, I would have very quickly and very easily said elk. 
But as I've progressed in this and seen the opportunities and, and, you know, learned more, it's really hard to pick. And every single critter I've photographed or had the opportunity to photograph brings something different. And what I found that's really fun and exciting is that I'll use the lizard example. I never in my wildest dreams figured I would even take the time to photograph a lizard ever. Right. And it's one of the funnest shoots I had last year. Shooting lizards in the desert in May or whenever it was. And uh, it was, I was a black, I'm looking for, I'm going to do it again this next year. And I already have shots in mind that I want to try to capture and I'm excited about it. And that's, what's cool is that there's something every time of the year, every month of the year, um, every week of the year, if you really look to photograph and to learn. And the cool thing about it is every time I've done it and photographed a new species is the time I spend, I learn something new and I learn more about that, that's that critter. And I might start to go do research on that critter and try to understand more about their behaviors and their habits and, you know, see some images out there that go, oh, that's a cool image. I, you know, I think I want to take that and try to make that my own or, you know, mm-hmm. but anyways, that's, that's probably would be my answer now is very similar to what these guys said. But four years ago, I'd have said elk without a question. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's neat. It's funny when you talked about lizard reminded me like uh, one of the things I was up to last spring during the height of the sort of the beginning of COVID was uh, where I live, you know, in the springtime, the salamanders come to these ponds in the forest, these ephemeral ponds, and they come in mass for, you know, a week or two maximum in the spring to breed. And I thought, well, that would be a fun photographic challenge. And I, I, I won't get into the, I mean, I tried everything, trying to do it underwater without a housing, using a fish tank or whatever, and trying to do split shots with like a GoPro housing that was Jimmy Riggs so I could put my SLR in there. I tried everything. And, and it was a complete failure, but by God, it was fun. And I'm just like you, I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do that again this spring. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was yeah. really fun. <laughs> Ron yeah. has a camera condom for you. That'll work for that half in half out stuff. He'll send it. <laughs> oh yeah. Is that one of those Outex things? Outex. Yeah. 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 Have you been we, using that? We tried it in Alaska two falls ago and try to get some split shots and then try to get some uh, salmon. Yeah, but the area that we were in, it was it was more glacial water, mm-hmm. so it was really murky. Yeah. And then after I left, of course, these guys found the nice crystal clear stream, and got some really neat stuff. And I would have liked to have I would have liked to have been able to try that camera, in that clear water and just see what we could have produced. But it it works pretty slick. I mean, and it's do you, a, and do you feel like you get system? Can you control the camera pretty well through that material, that rubbery no, stuff? You cannot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you've yeah. got to, I mean, you've got to bring it out of the water, but you can adjust your settings through yep. the silicone. But, but that's what I mean. Like, can you adjust your f-stop? Changing you? those settings underneath the water is difficult because you can't see the viewfinder. Right. You know, and of course, unless you're in the water, yep. which glacial fed, it was a little cool. Yeah. Um, so I didn't try that there, but I think uh, I, I actually was, this is off the the topic of your question, I was uh, trying to get some footage of some soft shell turtles in, uh, oh, in one of the parks here in Wyoming. And they go up under these little mineral shelves and, and they'll, you know, go up in there to, uh, for escape cover. And then they'll come back out. They've still got to breathe. So they come back out. And I think that that is another really good opportunity to utilize that Outex. And I think it would allow you to get the, the mineral shelf and the, and the turtle. I got some good GoPro stuff of the turtles, but I think next year it's going to take about six GoPros. And so I'm going to need all of you to send them to me because I'm not going to buy six. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm, I'm going to try the Outex camera as well. 
No, I, I, think I think you need that really outtex because you just need a bigger element on the end of your lens to get that yeah. split shot. I don't think that. Yeah, you do. I think the GoPro is just too small mm. to get that. True, it's too small. That look. It won't work. I mean, I've had some success with the GoPro uh, putting. You know, you can get a dome for the GoPro. And I've had some success with that for sure, doing splits of um, salmon. I've used it more for video, uh, but mm-hmm. um, I've had some success with that for sure. But I think, um, you know, with the SLR, how big is the dome on that and the edX? It's not like a full eight-inch dome. No, thing, is it? No, it's not a full dome. But you can buy, you know, it's probably a five-inch dome. Yeah, and that was a good enough for, for your wide-angle lenses. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for like a twenty-four to seventy. It's just got a, a flat element that goes in front on the lens. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting little thing because, you know, housings are so prohibitively expensive and something that most people don't use often enough to justify, myself included. I mean, as, as I would I would love to get one, but... Yeah, so, well, we well, talk about that all the time. But yeah. for me, going back to your question, um, not necessarily a favorite species, but my favorite behavior of any species to capture is is just breeding season yeah and it you know for me it starts in the spring with swift fox in you know february i i still have not caught uh the wolves i have well that same friend that i talked about sam he goes up in the you know late winter early spring to try to capture wolf breeding season and then uh, you know rolls right into grouse season grouse and turkeys uh, black bears in the spring as well and then you go through the summer and you you hit you know august september and that's that's my favorite time of year because it's all the charismatic megafauna starting at the end of august running clear through what we're in december now and i'm about to go back out for the sheep rut one more time mm-hmm. uh, sheep and goats and they're all breeding all fall and it is wow that's my favorite activity because the animals are so active and they really, even, even in areas that are not protected or they're not habituated, you can still get good images because those animals are so focused on, you know, the task at hand. I can, every time I'm out trying to capture a breeding season of anything, you can hear David Attenborough and you're in the back (laughs) of your head talking about fighting for the right to propagate the species. I won't even try the accent. But, you know, I heard that so many times growing up and mutual right from mutual in Omaha, of Omaha right through National Geographic and, and now planet Earth. You can still hear him say it. He says it all the time. Yeah. But that is definitely my favorite behavior to capture. Yeah. Just because, I, you know, there's so much, so many opportunities. Mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. I add something here real quick? Did you guys watch The Octopus Teacher on Netflix? Yes. Uh, yeah, but yes. that's on the list. Everybody's told me you you have to watch it. Did I think like that's the – oh, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, look how much that guy learned. I mean, it's just as incredible. And what – it's just yeah. amazing. So that's kind of like my process this next year, actually being inspired by that. It's like, mm-hmm. what can I choose? Do I need to spend 40 days with moose again? No. You know, I think, mm-hmm. can I find some species that, where you can spend that kind of time? Is it a bumblebee? Is it a mm-hmm. wolverine? Is it a, I don't know. I don't really care. But to spend that mm-hmm. kind of time with one species, I think you could just document some stuff, which he learned on that show, right? Or that, that documentary. It was just awesome. If you haven't watched Octopus Teacher, it's 
definitely worth the, I don't know, what was it, Tim? It was only like an hour and 20 it's minutes or something. It's an hour and you know, and it's great. It's, it's all those things you said. I mean, what he did was like he just immersed himself in the environment of this animal, right? And I got the feeling like he wasn't even trying to document it at first. He was just observing. And then he got the camera later on. And I mean, the one thing that struck me on that is, you know, I, I don't live on the West Coast anymore. I miss the ocean dearly. And watching that, my God, all I wanted to do was swim in the ocean. All I wanted to do was get a mask and flippers and dive down underwater and just see that other world that's down there. You know, it, and, and I think the um, just just the fact that he immersed himself in that world, you know, so intently for uh, with such intent for so long. I mean, there was something really magic about that. And, and I think... Uh, yeah, I think you kind of can't lose anything you pick. If you dive into it like that, um, you're you're gonna something will be revealed to you, right? It's it's neat, and so that that's actually something I wanted to ask you guys. Like, so Michael's already started on this, but you know, are there any particular projects you guys have on the horizon that you're excited to sink your teeth in into? Uh, maybe those are things that you couldn't do this year because of COVID, or, or or something you've had on the back burner for a while that you want to dive into. Maybe it's a couple years ahead of you or something, but. Is there any pet projects, or maybe maybe you don't want to reveal those? I don't, maybe those are secrets. Well, I <laughs> <laughs> just being inspired, being inspired by the uh, people that we've had on on the show. Yeah, that that's one of the best parts of doing this podcast is that sure. is that we get to visit with so many people, and a couple of the guys. You know, it's no secret I'm a big Jacques Cousteau fan, Marine Life, and a couple of the guys. Uh, Jorge Hauser and Eli Martinez, those guys do a lot of the shark diving, and so that's one thing that I'm definitely going to. I'm I'm going to be out with one, if not both of those guys, at some point in the next year or two. So, Ron, mm-hmm. did you say you watched the Octopus Teacher? Or no, you haven't. No, I haven't yet. Oh, that's, well, then you're going to blow a gasket on the, on the list. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. for sure. And the, you know, it's crazy. Just this goes back to what we talked about in just observing wildlife and, and not just in that two weeks of the year that you're out, you know, as a sportsman, but when you get out and observe, you just get to see the intelligence of these animals and you get to see the day daily life. I mean, we were in the Canadian Rockies photographing bears a, a couple springs ago and this helicopter came over and there was a sow grizzly with a what two year old, two-year-old cub that was still with her this helicopter came over and the cub spooked and you always think of grizzly bears as these rough gruff mean eat everything that gets in their way animals well the cub spooked ran up into the edge of the timber to find some cover well she coaxed him back down and when he came down he stood there and she just laid her head right on his back for probably Hmm. i don't know three, four, five minutes oh, wow. just to comfort him. And those, those are the kind of things that you don't see. And those are the kind of, you know, the, the octopus teacher kind of makes me think of that because octopus are very intelligent creatures. And uh, they, there's lessons to be learned, you know, from everything. And I think that the, the opportunities that photography gives us to go out and just observe, um, most people will never have that in their lifetime. And I think how unfortunate those people are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what are they missing out on? But that's that's what's great about the work you guys do is sharing these stories for people who uh, 
can't. I mean, there's a lot of people who just can't can't do that. I mean, that that story you just relayed there about the bears. I mean, it's, it's fascinating on so many levels, right? I mean, it's an amazing observation, but it also speaks to not only the intelligence, but also perhaps the emotional lives of these element of these animals, right? And uh, and I think it's fascinating when you're at the more time you spend out there, you know, the more stuff you see, and and those subtle nuances only appear to you after you've spent considerable time in the field, you know. And uh, yeah, that's that's really neat. So any, any anything you guys, you know, maybe you guys are keeping your cards close to your chest, but is there any particular projects or places that you, you, you want to take on in the next little while or, or do you want to leave that? Um, I'll go. I'm, I I missed out on some stuff this year because of COVID yeah. and yeah. I had a couple trips planned to Alaska and I'm hoping mm-hmm. that this next year I can make those happen. I'm an open book. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't have any secrets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've wanted to get up and shoot um, bears in Alaska, mm-hmm. um, grizzly bears, fishing bears, things like that. That's been yeah. something I've always wanted to do. And I know it's been done a million times over, but I want to go get my own images. And well, just yeah, for the you, experience, you want the experience, right? It's yeah, absolutely, experience, right? It's like sure, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's it's not just about the images there. I mean, being around a salmon stream is, I mean, that, that's a powerful experience. Yeah, you know, just being there. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, you, you don't need to justify your desire to do that <laughs> to anybody. I mean, that is, yeah, you know, there's so yeah. many people who just wish they could. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I feel very fortunate I'm able to do it. So hopefully, with COVID, I can make that happen this next year and. And then moose, you know, is another one that I'm trying to make happen next year too. Mm-hmm. But along with all the other, you know, um, charismatic megafauna that are around that I can go chase too. But those yeah. are those are probably the two things I have coming up for me that I'm excited about. But. Right, right, yeah. There's this other guy that I want to go out with too, but they don't allow Americans currently. Uh, <laughs> what's his name, Mark? Uh, Canadian wildlife guide that guides for spirit bears and coastal wolves and yeah exactly <laughs> i haven't seen him in a while no, no, nobody, nobody's seen him his whereabouts are unknown <laughs> that's definitely a trip that's on the radar too for sure yeah well you guys are welcome i would it would just be amazing for you guys to, to come up i'd love to host you up there and hopefully things will come around and we can make it happen yeah 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 can we? I just. I'm curious to back up a little bit and ask you guys. I mean, you guys all started shooting stills. Now, obviously, I know. I know Michael does a lot of video. I don't know that about the other. The rest. I'm assuming you guys are all doing video in one way or another. More is and that, more all the time. Yeah. Is that something you guys are all doing more of all the time? Yeah. Well, they have our fives. <laughs> they have our fives, so we're not talking about video. Right. <laughs> so you guys are both. I know Ron. I just saw Ron uh, on Instagram. You posted you got an R5. I did. And, uh, Mike's yeah. got one, I know. And I'm uh, still not. I'm still not a fanboy. Oh, not yet, eh? Oh, that's I've interesting. Pretty vocal about that, yeah. Okay, I'd, interesting. I've had too many shoots where it's like fifty percent on the autofocus, and I'm not happy with that. Stills or video? Which situation? Uh, stills. Stills. Okay. Yep. Oh, okay, Ron. Good. I I, I am gonna call well. Harlan. <laughs> no, no, no! Don't call Harlan. Just the. Did you do the update on the firmware? Yes. Okay. Because I did that and my problem went away. Okay. Uh, well, I didn't. I haven't shot anything since I did the update. So. Oh. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> for as much as I paid for that camera, it should everything, everything should be in focus. Well, and I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not arguing. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So is there, other, is there other gear that you guys like? You know, is rather, uh, you know, everybody's shooting video. There's all this stuff happening. Um, 
is there new, is there, you know, obviously you guys have talked about the R5 a lot on the podcast, which has been really interesting to listen to. And it's a bit hard to listen to because, you know, it makes me yearn. Too much, probably. But Come on, but, Nikon. <laughs> yeah, come yeah. on. But is there other novel gear that you guys are excited about that you can see it opening up new opportunities? You know, I don't know what that might be for you guys, like drone or underwater action stuff. Cameras. Like, so, action cameras. Action yeah. cameras. I love action cameras for storytelling yeah. and for trying yeah. to get different video perspectives of these animals. Mm-hmm. It's a whole new, uh, drones are too, but a whole new opportunity that we cannot capture with telephoto. I mean, we can create a certain type of format of video with telephoto mm-hmm. lenses that we use for the still photos as well. But the action cameras, they're a lot of fun to use in the field and even even the here's a scary thing i don't want to i don't want to pretend i'm a wizard and can see into the future Mm. but what happened from film to digital Mm. and we love our camera gear and obviously there's going to be certain professional and commercial applications that will require high-end video but what the heck is happening with smartphones and what's that going to look like in five years from now when i hear that they can do a 10 times magnification kind of thing it's going to be scary I mean, there's a, such a swing in, in, the, in this profession already with the capability of modern digital cameras and now the mirrorless. But the smartphones are so good at yeah. capturing everything but something far away. Yeah. So where's yeah. that going? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that and storytelling mm. is, is fun with them. Sorry, guys. Yeah, no, no problem. The football field in my hometown is there's a big hill across from where the high school is. It's called T Hill. And it's probably, you know, 500 feet, four or 500 feet. So up at the top, there's a parking lot. The football field was named after my dad. So there's this big archway that's got his name on it. This friend of mine from high school, he works for Samsung. So he had the Note, what is it, the Note 20 now or something like that. Anyway, he's up on top. That that phone has an 8K sensor in it. What? He takes a picture of the football field that's probably pretty close to a half mile away. He zoomed in and sent me the picture of the arch that has my dad's name on it. Wow. With the phone. <laughs> so what wow. you're saying, Mark, I, I think you're spot on. I, the technology I think that's coming is nuts, and it's we're not going to need interchangeable lenses anymore at some point. Yeah. You're going to be well, able to get this 8K footage with a zoom button. It's it's crazy. I mean, you know, we we, we <clears throat> last time I was out guiding uh, last fall, we were you know standing around there in between uh, bears or wolves or whatever it was, talking about this you know this revolution coming or that it was sort of midway through with the mirrorless thing, and then we're saying, oh, well, you know, I mean, the real thing is that you know before too long we won't have to carry around these big heavy camera bags. We'll just pop a phone in our pocket, and there you go. <laughs> Yep. You know, and it'll feel so much less significant because we won't, we're not carrying these big heavy bags, you know. <laughs> well, I think a lot of that just speaks to the, it's like Mark said earlier, it's the storytelling, right? It's more, yeah. the story is the most important part. And I just heard today, and I don't know how long it's been out, and I haven't even checked into it. So this is just hearsay. But one of my buddies called me and she said, hey, did you hear that there's this new thing called Discovery Plus? And I'm like, what's Discovery Plus? And she's like, apparently they've, hooked up with a bunch of YouTube filmmakers that are going to create natural history programming that then will go on a new channel called discovery plus. Hmm. So if that's the case, I mean, 
I guess it just speaks to, you know, a lot of these guys on YouTube are not the big lens toting, you know, it's all about right. story. And yeah. yeah, you get those few shots that you need to illustrate it, but it's more about the adventure. It's not as much about one particular shot or one portrait or one whatever. It's that adventure or that experience that you had. To, and you just relay that experience and be able to show, share that with people. And these little action cameras are what do it, you know, or the phones. Yeah. You could shoot. I've shot whole projects for big corporations just on phones because that's what they wanted. And they're oh, you're fine kidding. With they, it. They, they just wanted that feel. Like that was specifically what they asked for. Well, part of it was they wanted the speed of the turnaround. And so I was able to shoot it and deliver like throughout the, throughout this event, it was during the world series. So we were shooting throughout the world series at a particular location and we didn't know who was going to win. Right. So we were shooting, I don't remember who was playing. It was like uh, Cleveland and Boston. I don't know. I don't remember, but they were both playing and we had teams at both places and we had to be building because they wanted a video out 30 minutes after the game was over. So oh, wow. the only way I could do that is to shoot short clips on the phone, email them to my editor back in Denver, and he's building two timelines simultaneously because we don't know who's going to win the game, and it was game seven. So right. that was the only way we could do it is through the phone. And they were totally – and the product, you look at it, especially if you're consuming it on a phone, which most people are consuming a lot of their stuff right on a phone, you know, it mm -hmm. doesn't really matter. So – yeah, I think we just got to look at it more about the storytelling. And I heard a stat, and maybe I said this on the podcast not too long ago. If I did, I'll just take it out of the podcast. But I heard a stat, and I don't know if it's true. 33% of the people in North America have never seen a cow. What? <laughs> really? If that's true, how many, <sighs> how, what is the percentage that have never seen an elk? Or never yeah. seen a moose or never, yeah. you know, could you say 75% of people in North America have never seen a wolf? I would wow. say that's probably legit. Oh, higher. Yeah, I bet you're right, Mark. I bet it is higher. Yep. So Moose is higher. So if you can come back with stories of some of this stuff and educate and, you know, I don't care if it's a dot. If it's a dot and you're, you're still, they can still see it. That's more important to me than, you know, I don't care what camera I got as long as I can tell that story. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, I don't know if you guys follow somebody I stumbled upon on Instagram, Camera Pros. You see those guys? No. Camera Camera underscore Pros, and they they show you just like sometimes they'll show you a bit of a behind the scenes about how they're going to do a shot, or or how they're doing the shot, and then they show the shot, little videos, and they use any kind of camera. Sometimes it's a red, sometimes it's a phone, and you just look at what they're capable of doing. It's like you. If, if they didn't show you what what machine they were using, you wouldn't know if they were using the phone or the red camera because the stuff they're pulling off is amazing. It, it's it's worth taking a look at. It, it gets the creative juice of flowing to, to look at what these guys are doing. It's pretty amazing. Yep. Yeah. No, well, I, I think, think you guys there was right. some stuff very early on. I, if you guys have followed Chase Jarvis, I think he was one of the first guys out mm. there that was, what's the best camera? It's the camera you have. Whatever you have is the best camera. It doesn't matter if it's a phone, if it's a GoPro, if it's a big DSLR, if it's a red, it doesn't matter. Just if you got a camera, that's your best camera. Just make something yeah. happen. Tell that story. Yeah, sure. But, Do you guys ever mess around with like, sorry, Mark, go ahead. You had no, I was just going to say the, the ease of editing and piecing together on the phone, everything can be done one stop shop. Like you say, if it's being consumed on a phone, 
is it's just revolutionary. I mean, it's you just same idea. If you stop and think what the life was like before the internet, stop and think about what these little things are capable of yeah. now. I mean, obviously it explains why most of the world's addicted to all aspects of them, but mm-hmm. what they're capable of now, what's happened in the past 10 years, what's going to happen in the next 10. So yeah, it's, it'll be curious. We'll be talking wild and exposed years yes. from now and will we all just be carrying something small like that and storytelling yeah. through that or oh, yeah. the hiking What's... would be so much easier imagine right? yeah imagine yeah but but where would that sense of where would we get the sense of accomplishment if we're not carrying more it's miles. a story it's the quality of the story still oh, right right, right? okay, okay. So we're that's still and and to me i think that's where the future is going that's what i love to do is is and the whole one of the things that initiated this podcast was sharing that sharing the adventure with people who can't for all kinds of reasons mm-hmm. necessarily live it as frequently or if ever as much as as they'd like to there whether it's you know due to careers due to family due to physical restraints due to age due to lack of knowledge to share those stories that'll never go away yeah. so it's just the creative hardware that we tell it through is changing at light speed and it's exciting because of that, what the capabilities of, I mean, again, the high ISO and what the storytelling through phones just have yeah. to shoot 4k on a, on a smartphone or what's, what's next. So I don't think that's going to change. And that's the excitement. One of the things about our podcast, I mean, I love, as Ron mentioned earlier, meeting so many wonderful, passionate, diverse people across this planet. Mm-hmm who we have the privilege of having on as guests and, and hearing about their lives and what fuels them. But another important part of our show is the excitement around the technology and the gear mm-hmm. that really we can't describe how fast it's changing to yeah. expect a new, a new action camera every year and a new phone every year. That's going to be a big step forward. And then what's happening with, mirrorless cameras and our DSLR is obsolete and well, how long will mirrorless cameras cameras be yeah. relevant with phones? It's it's super exciting to follow that. And and we all do on YouTube. I mean there's so mm-hmm. many channels to watch and and digest and, and get a, a variety of feedback. You're not just watching one of course because there's all kinds of influence out there. But it's an ex- there's never been a more exciting time to be in photography, the whole field, which is incredibly diverse, but then the wildlife nature component that fuels all of us individually. Phenomenal. Where is it going, guys? Yeah. Welcome so, to year four. <laughs> uh, so exciting. But I, I think, you know, what that, that, that what you just said actually got me really excited. But just like how you're saying that there's never been a more exciting time to be involved in this, you know, because of the technology and everything that, that makes possible. And, and yet underneath all these exciting advances and all these different things we can do, which are mind boggling, is that fundamental principle of, of, telling stories right that's what makes things resonate like sometimes it's a particular image that can just tell a story or sometimes a, a body of images or whatever it is or, or video whatever but i think that's that sort of fundamental uh fundamental part of human nature is storytelling and you know obviously visual imagery is such a great way to do that because humans are such visual creatures right and just with the parade of riches of you know technology that we have i mean there's so many powerful tools that are that are uh in our hands, you know, I, I look back, I look at some of the things people are posting now, different trips and stuff they're doing. They're making these amazing videos. They're sharing people. They're inspiring people. I'm like, man, I sure wish I had that technology, you know, when I was doing some other trips, you know, earlier in my life, I sure wish I could have shared the experience with more people, you know, and in some respects, some of those adventures I did were almost just purely selfish pursuits. 
and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's nice to be able to share those things. And some people do that really well from a place of generosity. Other people do it for their own self-interest. And I think everybody can see through that pretty quickly, but it is amazing. Like you say, all the things that are possible. What a spark that interest in planet earth. That's yeah. where I, I love yeah. channeling that. And, and yeah. there's never been a time that we can share it virtually real time if we choose to yeah. and inspire people to care about what we care about. And, and you know what's interesting about that? Because, you know, when I was a kid, it's like, I don't know, you know, I watched like the nature of things up here in Canada, a nature show, or I'm sure I watched, you know, David Attenborough or whatever. But those, you know, my dad and my grandfather were naturalists. And so they talked about nature and they took me out to do stuff. But watching those documentaries really was a big part of why I got interested in, in the outdoors. And now, you know, it's not just the realm of the BBC and these big networks. I mean, anybody can produce something, right? It's like almost like there's way more people who can then have this influence on the populace and put nature, you know, under their noses. And, and that's exciting for those of us who, you know, at this state in the history of planet Earth, we need a lot more people advocating for Earth. And I think it's great that we have people doing it. You know, technology is enabling that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, YouTube. What happened? You know, it used to just be a TV network, and the lucky few would have their show, and it would still be um, directed by the network and and their interests and and their marketing, et cetera. Not that anything mm -hmm. was wrong with that, mm -hmm. but now the there's so much opportunity, and if somebody's creating great content with perseverance and passion and and generosity, it will be discovered in time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. It's exciting stuff. Well, gentlemen, uh, I, I need to get going. Can we, I, you know, we could talk all night, but maybe we need to wrap well, we have. up. That exciting we have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's been awesome. It's fun to turn the tables and it's fun to just uh, talk about some of our, I think a lot of the stories we talked about this come out in little bits and pieces, but never yeah. anything this comprehensive, which is kind of cool. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've listened to your show a lot and I really, really enjoy it, but I've often been curious to, to learn more about you guys and hear more about you guys. And, and I've said before, and, I'll say it again. I mean, you guys are such gracious hosts and you, you really listen and you're there to support your guests and you do it so wonderfully. And, and yet you guys, uh, you know, have so much to say in yourselves. And so it's nice to, nice to hear from you guys. And I'm sure the audience is going to appreciate it. Hold on before, before we go, mm -hmm. I want to hear a pro tip from Tim. Oh, oh nice. pro tip from me. here we go. Right nice. on the spot. Yeah. Oh, you're you're out there doing all that guiding. You got to have something in your hip pocket that's like, ah, I never thought of that. No, you know, I have a. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I'll think of a really good one in two. As days. soon as we're <laughs> off, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two days from now, I'm going to think of a great one. I'm all right. Well, then we don't one. have to put you on the spot. You can email him, email it to me. I'll put it on the show notes page. That way, somebody has to go look at the show notes page to get your killer yeah. pro tip. You know, I'll throw one out there. I'll throw one out there because you know, in when I'm guiding, you know, you get you get people who are in many many different stages of their photographic journey. Some people who are just amazing photographers, and some people who are just learning. And so this is a pro tip for more the the people who are just learning because for some reason something I encounter, and I'd be curious to know if you do too, is that. A lot of the folks are just learning. Maybe it's their first camera. You know, it's their first time they've got like a telephoto lens or something. For some reason, they all have it in their head that like you got to be really, really careful with your image quality and you just you can't bump your ISO up too high. You got to be really careful. The quality won't be good. And I just see it over and over again. These people take blurry images because they're, they're too worried about bumping up their ISO. And so their shutter speed is just too slow. And then they think there's something wrong with their camera or they think they're, they're, 
they just don't know how to process things afterwards in Lightroom or whatever. And it just comes down to the fundamental principle of you got to be shooting fast enough to stop the action. And that's, it's a basic thing, but like, you know, if you're worried about noise, you know, would you rather have a little noise or would you rather have a blurry image? You know, we can do things about noise. You can't fix a blurry image. And so, you know, that, that's a basic thing, but for, for a lot of folks starting out, like just don't limit yourself to your uh, ISO, especially with these modern cameras. You can get away with an awful lot. Expose to the right, capture as much detail as you can, and you'll be so much further ahead than if you try to shoot at lower ISOs and a slower shutter speed when you're shooting wildlife action. I like it. That's a good, good one. Good one. Okay, well. See, you had it in you. If you, <laughs> if you didn't, Michael's got some for sale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, thanks for the opportunity. It's been so great to sit here and chat with you. And, uh, you know, I've said it before. I've always wished that we could uh, sit down and have a beer or a cup of coffee together. And this is as, as, as close to that as we can get right now. So it's going to happen after COVID. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, let's make that happen. Yeah. Hopefully on the West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we ever let you out there. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for making this a very interesting launch to 2021, our fourth season at Wild and Exposed. To the guys, Michael, Ron, Jason, myself, we are so grateful for the three years that you've all been on board. For those of you who've just found us, come on. We're moving on to our new year. I hope that 2021 is a heck of a lot better than 2020 as far as health and stress and what we're all able to do. Either way, let's get into the outdoors or get out to the outdoors and enjoy the wilderness, fresh air. There's no better therapy or place to find peace of mind. You can find Tim's information on today's show notes at wildandexposed.com. And you can find more of our work on Instagram and Facebook at Wild and Exposed, as well as on our YouTube channel. Our audio podcasts go up every Tuesday and our videos on Friday on YouTube. You can watch there. You can see that this whole podcast, Jason and I have been wearing our beanies, our toques, which Michael worked hard this year on creating a store and the products. Honestly, we ordered this stuff. We're testing it and it's good. These are warm. Too warm to wear inside for a whole podcast, Jason. <laughs> Agreed. But we got through it. Check it out. Support our podcast. Thank you for listening. Lots more to come. We can't wait to bring you all the content that's planned for this year and some more phenomenal guests. Thanks again, everybody. You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We got our windows down, driving down the 405, sing along to the radio, Mm-mm. we're gonna make it someday, nothing's gonna get in our way, we will be the biggest band in town, Mm-mm. round and round the world we'll go.